This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Today we're talking about fighting in hockey. And the reason why is that coming up a little bit later this morning, we are going to be speaking with journalist Jeremy Allingham about his new book. It's called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. It tells the story of three hockey players who made a career out of fighting and what that ultimately cost them. And um, it's just so timely, too, to be doing this coincidentally, actually. On Sunday night, I went to a hockey game. I was in Las Vegas. I saw the Las Vegas Golden Knights play the San Jose Sharks. Now, if you love hockey, if you saw the highlights of that game, you probably did because it was everywhere because of how many fights actually happened during the game. In fact, I think Evander Kane of the Sharks got a three-game suspension of how many fights there were. I was really taken aback at how enthusiastically the crowd jumped in when there was the fight. Like from the first fight, every single one, the crowd was yelling. They were on their feet. Like they really enjoyed it. And Jeremy Allingham puts it in his book. He calls it bloodlust. And that's very true. But have things changed though? So we wanted to take your temperature on this when it comes to professional hockey and fighting. So for our hot question of the day today, we are asking, in your opinion, is fighting a necessary part of professional hockey? Like, do you still believe in the code? You know, if you're a hockey fan, if you're a traditionalist in particular, you believe there's certain times when a player has to fight, get insulted this way, oh, somebody's got to step in. You you hit the star on the team, somebody else has to go after, you know, that person who did that. There's all this stuff in the hockey code. Now, do you still believe that? In your opinion, is fighting a necessary part of professional hockey? Do you say yes, makes the game more exciting? Or do you think, no, with everything we know now, it makes the game too dangerous for people health-wise, for players in particular. So go to Sarah 980 on Twitter or at CKNW on Twitter. Cast your vote there. Let us know what you think about that. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. I'd love to hear your uh, reasoning on this one or your thoughts on this. And you can call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Well, let's update you now on how that election is going at my house. Finally, I was wondering when they would show up, but our registration card showed up. You know, the ones telling you where to vote, what the hours are, when the advanced polling dates are, which lets me know we are getting close to this. We're about halfway through the campaign, but still not a lot of movement, it looks like, in the actual polling, showing what, say, your choices are if you are a decided voter. Conservatives maintaining a slim lead, according to a new Ipsos poll, over the incumbent Liberals. Now, this poll was conducted exclusively for Global News, so let's dig a little bit deeper into this now with the help of the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. That would be Daryl Berger, who's joining us once again. Hi, Daryl. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, I love doing this, and thank you so much, because it's, it gives us real consistency, right, during the election campaign, because you've been looking at this every single week. So what's different this week from the last time we talked to you? Uh, not a lot, and that's the uh, – <laughs> but but that is, that is a really story. important yeah. thing. Yeah, and, and so what, what we're seeing right now is pretty much a tie uh, nationwide. Um, uh, British Columbia is no better example uh, because uh, conservatives have like a one-point lead, which is no lead uh, in BC right now. And you've got several parties in British Columbia who might be able to win uh, seats in this election. But um, nobody's breaking away. Nobody's taking over this campaign. It's just stuck. And was there any movement for any party, though, over the last week? What we saw was a little bit of a, a slide for the uh, for the Green Party, but uh, they're down about four points. So, so they went from uh, I think eleven to seven. 
But um, the thing with the Green Party is always the same in, in every election poll that we do, which is they always tend to do better in the polls than they do right. on Election Day. So uh, in British Columbia, it didn't prove to be the case last time around. I mean, uh, in the provincial election in B.C., the Greens did very well. But normally in national polls, they've, they've become a little bit of the uh, none of the above category. So as the campaign heats up a bit more and people start seeing this as a bit more of a choice, it's a, it's a little harder for the Greens uh, to carve out a place. Right. So if they were down four points, who picked up that support? The Liberals picked up two and the Conservatives picked up one. So last week we had the gap between the Conservatives and the Liberals at four with the Conservatives in the lead. This week we have the Conservatives at a three-point gap. So uh, that statistically that's not a not really a change okay so and what about the ndp at this point ndp is at 15 so in spite of the fact that uh, jagmeet singh has been getting a lot of good reviews for his performance uh it seems to be from people who do reviews rather than from voters right that always makes a big difference i find that afterwards we'll be talking about that right how was that where was that disconnect yeah, and and uh, they're just a, just a bit of a failure to launch. Yeah. But even at but even at fifteen percent, that's still when you look at the you know the NDP over over history, that's not a bad performance. But if he's able to pick up a couple more points, because he would invariably take them away from the Liberal Party, uh, this turns into a very different race. So, are these decided voters that we're talking about, Daryl? And what about the yes. undecided? The undecideds are really interesting. There's about 11% of the, the, the voter population that's undecided right now, or it says that they're undecided. About half of that, that group says that they're certain to vote. And of that group right now, the best way to describe them is as disappointed liberals who haven't bought into Andrew Scheer and the conservatives. So they truly are undecided. They say, look, you know, I don't know what, I don't like what the liberals have been doing over the space of the last four years, but I'm looking at uh, Andrew Scheer and he hasn't, he hasn't really sold me on, on the nature of change that he wants to bring to the country. So I truly am undecided. I get that feeling too, with this election that in a lot of ways, I, I call it the hold your nose and vote election. Yeah, it really is uh, not one in which we're running enthusiastically to yeah. the polls. And and the, the problem with that, of course, it, it really uh, uh, comes to, to, to uh, come to ground with the Liberal Party because their voters last time uh, were extremely enthusiastic. I mean, one of the interpretations that we have of the last election campaign was that it was a, a whole bunch of people, because turnout was up eight points over the previous election, right. turned out to uh, to get rid of Stephen Harper. Actually, I don't think that was the case. I mean, there was, there was certainly uh, uh, that feeling there, but th- that was even more prominent, particularly for the younger voters who came out and voted for the Liberals, was a real uh, acceptance and belief in the in the message they were being given by Justin Trudeau about change and hope, and and it was really motivating and it drove a lot of people to the polls. So if people are holding their noses going to the polls this yeah. time, um, that's a problem for the Liberals. Do so. What happens then when we have that enthusiasm gap, as it's called? Does that mean like w- does that benefit uh, a particular party or anything like that? Yeah, it does. And it really, at this, at this point, it benefits the, one, the party that has the emotion in their vote. And the party that has the emotion in their vote right now is the Conservatives. And uh, the emotion is not a particularly pretty emotion. <laughs> it's anger. Yeah. Uh, they're very upset with the, with the uh, governance of the country over the last four years. And they want to get to the polls and vote on October the 21st uh, and, uh, and make a change in government. And when you take a look at the people who are conservative voters, they're disproportionately older people, um, uh, people who are more habitual voters, uh, people who uh, have a, a real firm conviction about the fact that they want to change. And uh, the liberal voters right now, it's soft. 
Very right. soft. So is that going to be the key then, do you think, moving forward? Now we've got a couple of weeks left here. We're at the halfway point. Is it all about who is going to be motivated enough to get out and vote? Yeah, every every election is, I mean, ultimately. But, but uh, in this particular case, it is the difference between winning and losing, uh, really, because the two parties are tied. It'll, it'll, it'll come down to who can get their votes to show up in the right places. And the, the battlegrounds are really the suburbs of places like Vancouver and the suburbs of places like Toronto. So who is able to get people who are uh, uh, who they need, people who are right. interested in voting for them, out to the polls. And right now, it looks like Andrew Scheer has an advantage in that regard. I guess I find this interesting, this election in particular, Daryl, because you've got these two parties running neck and neck, the two major parties, and yet there are lots, there are choices, right? There are other parties that are out there, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you are on. There's the NDP, there's the Green Party, there's the People's Party of Canada, and yet it is still neck and neck with the two major parties. Yeah, and, and it, because they, they realize, I think, people who are voting for those two parties, it's really a choice over the type of government that we're going to have. So they see the difference between the two governments, and they say the only way that we can elect what we want is by electing somebody who has the potential to win. Now, there might be some strategic voters, for example, who are looking at the NDP and saying, well, I want them to have the balance of power, but that's not increasing um, their their current party support. It's been 14, 15, 16 in, the, in that range for a, a couple of months. Right, and also you can't plan that, right? No. <laughs> you can't say we're going to try to get the NDP the balance of power. That's just something that happens. People, you can't organize that. Right. So there's, uh, there's uh, you know, uh, uh, people who get way too much into this. They start trying to sort of parse through public opinion and the strategies that people are applying. Most, almost, very, very many circumstances, people just vote who, 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 for who they want. Right. Uh, now, there might be some writings where you think that uh, your vote is going to be a wasted vote and therefore you should do something else. But in those situations, people who have wasted votes tend not to vote at all. So what do you see in your crystal ball here? With the current setup the way it is, with that polling data that you've got there, what does it look like in terms of who's going to form government? Uh, really difficult to say because right now it doesn't look like anybody's got a majority in sight. So what we're going to probably come down to is a situation in which uh, the liberals or the conservatives are going to have the plurality of votes or plurality of seats based on who can get their votes out. And then after that, uh, it really depends on how the Bloc Québécois does in Quebec, and they're certainly on the rise. And it depends on whether or not the NDP is able to deliver enough votes that they would be able to put, say, for example, the liberals over the top and give them a governing type of coalition. So uh, even if we get through October the 21st, the path forward is not necessarily clear. You said the BQs on the rise in Quebec. That can't be good news for the liberals. It, it, well, it, it can't be good news for the Liberals, but it's also not good uh, good news for the Conservatives, uh, and definitely bad news for the NDP. I mean, one of the perceptions that we have of those uh, uh, of the NDP seats that exist in Quebec right now is that they are. Um, uh, basically liberals in a hurry. So they're you know, progressive voters uh, who voted for the NDP because they bought into Jack Layton and then Tom Mulcair, and they bought into that progressive agenda, and, uh, and the, uh, the liberals were not uh, as, uh, as aggressive on it, so they, they, they went with the NDP. That's not who they are. Uh, they're basically uh, previous Bloc Québécois voters, more nationalist in their orientation, more nativist in their orientation. So the likelihood that they're not going to break to the Liberal Party is pretty strong. Uh, and they'll probably move either to the Bloc Québécois or to the Conservative Party. Now, the interesting thing is, with the rise in the in the Bloc Québécois, we've also seen a decline not just in the NDP, but we've seen a decline in the Conservative Party. Right. So it's it's an interesting dynamic in Quebec. 
It seems like it's an interesting dynamic in just about every province, except for Alberta, because they seem to already know what they're doing in Alberta. Yeah, we can, we can just, you know, we can probably skip Election Day. Saskatchewan's, <laughs> Saskatchewan's pretty much the same. Right, but another in the, so Ontario, in Quebec, in BC, it's a toss-up at this point. It really is a toss-up, and it's going to come down to who can actually motivate their voters to show up. Now, as I said before, that we say that in every campaign. Yes. But this time around, it really is the case. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a razor's edge. Well, I guess, Daryl, we're going to be talking to you soon about that. Then, Daryl, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That's Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Once a week, we check in with him on the polling data that they've been doing to take a look at how this race is shaping up. You know, for the last 15 years or so, what's called fast fashion had been ruling the retail world. And that is places like H&M, Forever 21, where you go, the clothes are super cheap, but you're only going to wear them a couple times. You're going to wear them for the season and that's about it. Well, that has as it goes, gone out of style. So you're seeing some real slowdowns in sales at some of those stores. And then this happened, Forever 21, which is a huge low price fast fashion chain uh, filed for bankruptcy in both the US and Canada over the weekend. And that means that they are going to cease all operations in Canada. There still will be some stores in the United States, but they're going to greatly reduce that number. So they said the wind down of their Canadian arm is part of the plans to restructure and refocus the business. So we're talking about 2,000 people or so and 44 locations across Canada and big footprints in local malls too, like at Metrotown, for instance. So what does this mean for the industry? And is this the end then of that kind of fast fashion boom? To talk more about this and to get some insights on this, we're joined by Riley Stevens now. He's the Director of Insights for Retail Profit. Riley, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Is this something that was a long time coming? Well, it's an interesting sort of mix of events that have brought us to this point, absolutely. And I mean, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Forever 21 was certainly key in this fast fashion movement as we saw it. And a lot of their growth really up until this point came from riding this wave of things like the momentum in the economy and a millennial shopper who at the time was seeking really exactly what Forever 21 was making. So, you know, clearly social media and the movement behind social media helped with this as people were reluctant to post the same outfit twice, for instance, on social media. So these low-price, trendy fast fashion uh, outlets really became, um, you know, they were really able to ride this wave in this time. Right. I mean, now, of course, we see consumers, particularly younger consumers, not only understanding the implications of fast fashion on, on the environment, but truly demanding that the retailers and the products that they buy have sustainability practices in place. And that just wasn't the case? Like, was Forever 21 caught off guard by that? Didn't see the trend coming? Forever 21 definitely um, was victim to this, as well as the aging aging shopper that they had really been capitalizing on for the last 15 years, as you said. So, you know, I think what went wrong here was a couple of things. I mean, obviously, they had made a huge investment in in what was working for them at the time. You mentioned earlier these huge footprints in, in shopping centers. So this expansion was extensive and fast and didn't really account for this future that we were moving towards. The millennial shoppers that had been shopping with them for some time, for 15 years, have since grown up and are now purchasing differently and spending their money in different places. And as I mentioned before, these younger generations are now becoming far more aware of the implications that these retailers are having on the environment. So much so, in fact, that if we look at Gen Z as a a generation, they're actually willing to pay about 50 to 100% more for sustainable products from sustainable brands who have these practices in place. So 
I think that it was a bit of a it was a bit of a miss across a couple of different key areas that Forever Twenty One just wasn't able to, um, you know, change right. with the massive footprints that they had. Is it sustainable products they want, or do they just want products like we used to have that you could wear for a couple of years that would, you know, still the quality of it would hold on to longer, so you could go back to it in a couple of seasons? Well, that's a really interesting point because I think what we're seeing in the market now is a real um, a real spectrum here. So on the low end, we've got options like Amazon and some of these other online retailers who have really upped the ante in terms of how cheap can we make this product and how fast can we get it to our consumers. So Forever 21 actually wasn't the cheapest or the fastest option. In fact, only about 16% of their sales were actually happening online, which goes to show that their their customers were really going to other places that potentially had products that were you know cheaper or faster or more convenient to get. Now, on the other side, we see the high-end specialty retailers who do one thing and do it really well also really flourishing right now in this market. So I think it really left Forever 21 in the middle and in a place that they they couldn't really escape from. They weren't the fastest, most convenient, or the cheapest option, and they also weren't the high-end specialty retailer that would allow someone to wear their clothes more than a couple of times. Right. But are there new chains that are moving forward to take that place, or is it just that people are shopping less? It's definitely that there's other people that are coming in to take the place. What we're seeing now are the the retailers that are really doing well, particularly in um, these shopping center areas where Forever 21 wasn't able to to keep up, are people who are really introducing new concepts in retail and who aren't just solely focused on the distribution of products per se. So we're seeing a lot of people come in and they're offering things like services in their in their retail stores. Um, you know, we, we sort of said that there are lots of things in, in fitness and food and fun that are coming into these shopping centers now to really give people a different reason to actually shop in store. Um, and, and that's been really helpful because then what's happening from there is that once people are able to make a, a connection to the brand in store, then perhaps they would visit online and, and most of their purchasing may happen online, but they still have that brand uh, right. connection. But essentially, would you say, Riley, that people want something that is of better quality and they are willing to pay more for it? I would say that it's, again, uh, there's, there's two polarizing views on this. There's people who want quick, fast, cheap, and then there's people that want a nice, it's more expensive, um, higher-end specialty retailers or specialty products. And I would say that those two things are becoming more and more polarizing as, as companies like Amazon come in and really up the ante in terms of convenience. I wouldn't say that there's any change in terms of, I would say that the middle ground is now irrelevant and people are either one or the other. Right. Okay. So then if you're in the fashion industry right now, it must be very difficult. And plus, what are malls going to do with all this space now, Riley? Like that must be a big concern. It's absolutely a big concern, and I know that there was much talk um, between the, the landlords uh, where Forever 21 had a lot of their prime real estate in terms of how they could even help the, real, the you know the the retailers stay afloat. Um, so these are big concerns, and there's been a lot of um, a lot of questioning in terms of what will happen with these spaces. And certainly, we've seen this in Canada before with Sears um, and and Target as well. So. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the three things I mentioned before in terms of fitness and fun and food are all of the three pillars that we're seeing sort of moving more into these shopping centers as these landlords really try to identify the key things that can really drive people into these into these shopping centers. Right, because that's also the key. Are we having a problem with shopping malls too in recent years? Is that just not the way people are shopping anymore? Well, absolutely. I think people are really now trying to find other ways to drive people there because really when you look at the, the most convenient and easy way to get products, it is online and increasingly people are becoming more and more comfortable with shopping online as well. 
So really what we're seeing here is is um, shopping centers are having to find unique creative ways to get people to come in and to uh, enter the malls and potentially not rely on sales to actually happen in store, but to happen uh, afterwards, potentially online. So it's becoming it's becoming challenging for the retailers. It's becoming challenging for the landlords as they try to navigate this new sort of era of retail. And do you, what, what about service here, Riley, as well, right? It used to be that it was like minimum number of people. And now it just feels like people want customer service. They want to be able to talk to a human being. If, if, if they are going into a store, you have to provide them with something. Absolutely. And it's interesting because of all the research that we've done, it shows that, yes, people are increasingly shopping online. But particularly in the apparel category, most generations actually prefer to go in store. So what it shows us is that people would prefer to go in store. They want to shop in store. Yet physical retail is in some ways it's failing us, right? So we have to really look at the gaps that e-commerce is not able to provide us as, as customers. Retailers really need to tune into that and see how much they can provide their customers in store, how much they can elevate that experience, how interesting and exciting they can make it to really build a connection and an emotional connection with their customers so that whether they're purchasing products in store or online, they are maintaining a relationship with that customer. Right. But for the meantime, then it sounds like there's going to be some pretty empty spaces at some of these 44 locations. Yeah, that's right. Could be. All right. We'll see. Uh, Riley, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's Riley Stevens, Director of Insights for Retail Profit, talking about the retail industry. How do you feel about fighting in hockey? You know, when you go to a hockey game, like a Canucks game, do you expect to see a fight or two break out on the ice? Professional hockey has been really grappling with this for a while now. We know how destructive and detrimental fighting can be, and yet... Many, many fans still expect to see some fisticuffs when they watch a game. Why? Where does that feeling come from? And what is the human cost of that? Well, that's the topic of a new book out this month called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. It is written by journalist Jeremy Allingham, who joins us now. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote about... I, and this really struck me at the beginning of the book. You wrote about going to a Giants game on a Friday night and observing the crowd when a fight broke out. What really struck you about that? Well, it's funny because up until that point uh, of going to that innocuous Friday night game, I, I had really always internalized the message that, you know, from the Don Cherries of the world, from those Rock'em Sock'em videos, the clip you just played there, that fighting was normal and it was a part of the game it was, and it was necessary and for some reason, that night, I'm sitting there with the boys seven rows up, drinking a few beers, just expecting a, a regular old quintessential Canadian night at the hockey game. And then all of a sudden, the gloves drop and hit the ice before the puck even does. It's one of those fights that happens right away. And the crowd rises, the guttural thunder. And I, for some reason, zoned in on the players' faces. And what I saw was, these are two children. And we were the adults in the room, rising to our feet, screaming at the top of our lungs for them to bash each other's faces in. And once the fight subsided, I grabbed a program from someone close to me. Uh, turned out the kids were 16 and 17 years old, so literal children in the eyes of the law. And my stomach sank, and I kind of retreated to the concourse and uh, haven't looked at fighting and hockey the same ever since. It really does still happen, though. I was telling uh, you know the listeners earlier that I was at a Las Vegas Golden Knights San Jose Sharks game on Sunday night in Las Vegas, and a fight broke out, and just exactly what you just described there happened. Right, crowd jumps on their feet, mm-hmm. they are yelling there, and it was really striking to me because I thought, boy, they, they these fans are really deeply into it. So, do you think the players are doing it because the fans expect it, or do the players expect it? 
I think this message, the one I mentioned at the beginning, has, has truly and sincerely been internalized, yes, by fans, but more so by the players from a very young age. They are taught that to succeed, for your team to succeed, you must sacrifice. You must sacrifice your body and, in, you know, in the case of fighters, uh, sacrifice your brain and your well-being for the good of the team, for the victory, for the clan. And what they don't, what isn't hammered home to them is that this has consequences. This can have devastating consequences in the form of traumatic brain injuries, in the form of something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and the symptoms of that are devastating. We get, I get into it in the book with three guys, all from BC, all with dreams of making, pro, of, of making their pro hockey uh, careers and who in the end have these lives that are really challenging that, that, have you know like mental mental uh, health problems, addictions issues, um, in and out of prison, homelessness. Like these guys have very challenging lives, and so um, you know to see that happening is is so sad. But I, I mean, again, these guys thought they could make their right. pro hockey career come come true by doing it. You talked to three well-known hockey enforcers, James McEwen, Stephen Pete, and Dale Purinton. I just want people to have a listen right now, Jeremy, of a clip of a fight that Dale Purinton took part in when he was playing for the Islanders back in 2004. Shoots into the corner, but now Purinton puts Cairns down and keeps pounding away, and Garth Snow will come to Cairns' rescue. Dale Purinton knocked Cairns to the ice and then kept flailing away. And you don't often see a goaltender decide to join the fray. The Ranger goaltender, Mike Dunham, is standing at the Ranger line. Cairns is up, though. And now Cairns answering Purinton back. The linesmen have all they could do to keep Eric Cairns and Dale Purinton apart. Now, you talked to Dale Purinton. What's it like for him now? Dale's a great guy. He's, you know, he's been coaching. He has a couple of kids, and he's been coaching uh, some youth hockey on Vancouver Island. Uh, he struggles a lot with, you know, some of those symptoms that go along with long-term traumatic brain injuries. Uh, you know, he has a lot of mental health issues, some depression issues. Um, and after his playing career, I mean, he had a lot of impulse control issues, and you know, he still dealt in violence, and and that violence ended up breaking out outside of a bar in New York State at one point. And he ended up going to jail in a maximum security New York State penitentiary for uh, about five months. So he was away from his family at that time. But since that time, he's kind of um, decided to, to try and get his life together. He still has a lot of challenges um, when it comes to mental health, but uh, he's, he's living his life and trying to support other fighters. Um, you know, the reason I actually met Dale was my story of Stephen Pete and Stephen and Dale know each other from fighting each other, but Dale read my story about how poorly Stephen Pete was doing and wanted to reach out uh, for him to help. And, and people who know hockey enforcers know they often have a heart of gold. So Dale is one of those guys. He's just a fantastic dude, but uh, yeah, facing some challenges. So would you say that all three of them have similar stories then of kind of where they're at right now? Um, I would say no. They're, they're, where they're at now is, is quite different. But what I will tell you is that the way they got to where they are is very similar. These are young guys who had dreams of playing in, in the pro ranks. And what they found was the way they could do that was possibly by using their fists. And, you know, um, I can tell you that Dale is getting by. James is doing, James McEwen is doing quite well, former captain of the Corner Rockets. He actually put on a hockey school this last summer. Still has a lot of challenges from traumatic brain injuries, but he's doing fairly well. And then Stephen Pete um, has had a lot of struggles in and out of prison with homelessness. 
mental health issues as well. I'm, I have been in touch with him. He's doing okay. But uh, again, these are, these are challenges that face them on a daily basis. Do you think, Jeremy, that things are changing? Um, I think, so, so last year in the NHL, it was an all-time low for fights, but there was still 226 fights in the NHL last year. And if you add up the NHL with the American League and the East Coast League and then all major junior across the country, there were 1,770 fights in hockey last year. So we can say that fighting seems to be leaving the game, but if it is, it's happening very slowly and there are still hundreds upon hundreds of fights that happen, and we know the devastating consequences of those fights. Is the NHL more willing to admit that these days, do you think? No, not at all. I mean, um, earlier this summer, Gary Bettman appeared before a a parliamentary subcommittee on sports-related concussions, and, uh, I mean, I was flabbergasted. He really sidestepped questions about fighting, and I don't know whether he did this intentionally or not, of course, but he very clearly misrepresented the science on uh, traumatic brain injuries and uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He was actually corrected by the doctor he cited at the hearing the day after the hearing. So um, it doesn't seem as though the NHL is super keen to really address this in any meaningful way. So what will make the difference, do you think? Will there be a turning point? Will it be the players who eventually have to say, I'm not doing this? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be the players. What it has to be, I think, and the problem is, is we see Gary Bettman kind of dodging, but it has to be someone who has control of the rules, who has influence on the rules. Like, they have to decide that if we love the game of hockey, then we certainly have to care about the players who play hockey. And they have to say to themselves, we don't want any more deaths. No more Steve Monitors, Rick Rippins, Wade Belaks. Derek Bugards, no more guys like in my book who are suffering after their game's over. They have to put player health and safety first and legislate fighting out of the game. And the way to do that, there's a great example from the Ontario Hockey League just three or four years ago. They brought in a rule where if you fight more than three times in a season, you get a suspension every time you fight after that. And what happened? They cut fighting in half in one season. So if you bring in rules that just aggressively go after that behavior, you can snuff it out. Do you think the stories are more public too? Like you mentioned some names here like Rip Rippin and, and Derek Bugard. We're, are we much more willing and open to talk about those cases now, whereas before they might have just been kind of swept under the rug? Yeah, I think they were swept under the rug, and I think, we, I think there is a more, more of a societal willingness to address those stories. But I still think there's a huge problem with loving the game of hockey and then loving the players, but then once they leave the ice, just forgetting about them. That's what's happened to these guys in my book. You know, like they, they felt all this support from these fans and from their teammates and from their coaches and their teams, and then they left the ice and none of that was there anymore. And that can be really tough to deal with, especially when you have a lot of challenges. So I think the discussion is great, but we really need to focus in on the, like, I, like, well, like the book says, the human, the human cost and the human aspect of this story. Right, because a lot of the general managers, I would imagine, the coaches even, are still of that generation where fighting was acceptable, almost even encouraged. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a generational thing, but I think, again, it's that it's the reinforcement of the message of the value of fighting, that it needs to be there, that it serves some purpose, when what we know is that it's actually hurting people. And just like any other, uh, you know, hits from behind, hits to the head, um, stick swinging, whatever it may be, 
this practice hurts our players. And if we love hockey, we should care about our players and stop it. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time on this today. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me. That's Jeremy Allingham, a journalist and the author of a book called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. It's going to be hitting the shelves this month. And so what he does is he kind of details the lives and careers of three well-known kind of hockey enforcers, James McEwen, Stephen Pete, and Dale Purinton. And boy, some of those fights that a couple of those players took part in, you I'm sure you certainly remember. So in a moment, we're going to talk about hiking etiquette, do's and don'ts, and a big don't from this past weekend. We'll have more on that in a moment. But I got a lot of emails on this whole electric vehicle thing that we were talking about what's holding people back. Uh, BC Hydro put out a survey this morning about some of the misconceptions they said when they've talked to people. They talked to something like 1,100 people over the summer to ask them about their misconceptions. And the biggest one had to do with how long it takes to stop at a charging station uh, before you can get going again. So I asked you kind of what stops you from going that electric vehicle route. Now, Lorna wrote me, hi, Lorna from Kamloops saying, I was listening to the results of the hydro survey regarding electric cars. She said, I too would wonder how they worked on road trips. She said, my story is that last year I was at a Kamloops car show and she was talking to a Tesla car owner there with an all-electric car. I asked him if his, his was a city car or did he have another one for road trips? And he said, no, he used it, he used it to go to Vancouver, but would stop and hope charge it for 40 minutes at a public charger, then go into Vancouver for the weekend. Then coming back, he would charge for 40 minutes again in hope to get home. It worked for him, she said, but I wonder how much longer your wait time for the charge is going to be when there are more electric cars on the road. And she said, from what I've heard in the news, not a lot of thought has gone into infrastructure. There's actually more and more charging stations being built all the time, Lorna. Uh, That is definitely increasing. And depending on your car, like if you have a Tesla in particular, uh, there's a lot of Tesla charging stations. And so that makes a huge difference. And they're actually building a network so that you can take road trips and they will like identify the Tesla charging stations along the way for you. But that brings me to another email. I just have to find it from somebody there. I can't find it. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It's Serena who wrote me to say, She was also listening to the segment and she said, you know, they have a Tesla. And she said, in the summer, we were on our way back from Lillooet driving our Model 3. And the problem that we encountered was non-electric cars parked in the charging station spaces, she said. She said, the Tesla supercharger is in the Chateau Whistler. So you have to pay $7 to enter the parkade and then you pay at the station. She said, thankfully, we had enough charge to get back to Squamish because the Whistler Tesla supercharger was full of non-electric cars and also electric cars using the spaces for parking, but not for actual charging. And she said, we asked the parkade person about this and they said there's nothing they can do because it's a public parkade. And she said, I'm on a Facebook Tesla Model 3 group page. And she said, I gathered that this is a problem, non-electric parking in a charging spot, especially when the charging stations are in prime parking areas. That's a good point. Like, I wonder if that is a big deal out there. That would drive me crazy, especially if you really need. That would be like an electric vehicle pulling up at a gas station and just parking at the pump for no reason, (laughs) just because it's a good parking spot and it's in a good location, right? I could see how that would drive electric vehicle owners crazy. She said, but we love our Tesla and we are waiting to buy an electric truck in a few years. Uh, Boy, hey, not only that, uh, I I know somebody else is also just waiting uh, to buy an electric truck as well on that. So it's going to be pretty popular. Uh, I had a um, Danny who emailed me as well, who said, Simi, 
We searched for an electric car that looks quote unquote normal because that's what a previous emailer had said. And Danny says, we finally found one in the Volkswagen e-Golf. We switched to electric last year. We plug it in every night to 120 volts outlet and we love it. Uh, 15,000 kilometers and no issues, Danny says. Best of all, it looks just like the regular Volkswagen Golf. It is amazing how that is such an issue for people, right? That they want it to look normal. They want it to look like all of the other cars out there. So EV, why not? Wayne says, well, park. I could park it on the street, can't charge it there, he said. Takes too long to charge. By the way, that was a misconception. 30 minutes or less. It will get you enough, more than enough charge, 80 to 100% to get you going. Now, most people would stop for 20 minutes at a gas station if you're on the road, if you're on a road trip or something. By the time you go into the washroom and do all your other things, you know, buy lottery tickets, whatever the case may be that you do at the gas station. Uh, so also, Wayne said, not enough places to charge, especially if more people buy EVs. I'm willing to bet that was a problem for um, cars in the beginning as well. I'm not going to buy an automobile. Where am I going to fill up with gas? There's not enough gas stations. I'm sure they had that problem. That will be fixed. Travel distance limitation, Wayne says. And hybrid, he said, is much more practical considering all of the above. Well, we're getting there because you are considering hybrid. So let me know what is stopping you. Like, what are your concerns? Or maybe you made the switch and what's happened. Simi at cknw.com. You can weigh in with your thoughts on that. Now, we've been hoping to talk to North Shore Rescue about this story that happened over the weekend. But unfortunately, they're busy. I hope it's not because they're rescuing somebody right now. I hope everything is okay. But we were trying to get a hold of them for this because it was such a shocking story. Uh, you may have heard about this. It is just, I'm still outraged about this because of how bad this situation actually was. This has to do with a group of hikers who met up on a, it was an online Facebook group, right? So they met up and apparently this is very common, online Facebook group, they get together, they're going to go hiking. They meet up for hiking for the first time. So they go up, they go hiking they uh, were coming down from the mountain after they were all done. This was a, a, on, in North Vancouver. And I guess they had divided up into two groups, the fast group and the slow group. So they actually left behind the slow group. And the two people who were in the slow group, one of them was injured. She hurt her ankle. And she hurt her ankle. And so the other person in the slow group just left her there and just left her there. And if not for another person coming along on the trail a little bit later, uh, they would not have been able to even know that this person had been there. Why wouldn't they know? The hiking group wasn't planning on calling 911. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, that's not possible. Who would do that? Who would go out hiking in a group, have somebody with them who was injured, and then not actually call 911? Well, Search and Rescue have said this is a very kind of discouraging situation. They were really surprised that this would actually happen. So we have managed to track down Mike Danks from North Shore Rescue, and he is going to join us now to talk more about this. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. Man, I read this story this weekend and I could not believe it. Can you tell us what happened here? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really frustrating story, to be completely honest. I'm shocked that someone would leave someone behind, but... Really, the story was we got a call at 7 o'clock from BC Ambulance for an injured um, female hiker. There was a pretty significant language barrier, so they had an interpreter pass on some information to us that was really limited. Um, 
she kind of knew that she was in the Coliseum area, but that's really all we had and that she was injured. So thankfully, not long after she made the call, we got a second call from an informant that was just happening uh, to be hiking back on that trail. And he was able to communicate to us exactly where they were and what had happened, that she was in a group of five and that group of five had um, left her behind and she had injured herself shortly after and she was very inexperienced, wasn't aware of really which direction to even go and yeah, that she needed help. And so the other hikers then, I understand search and rescue kind of ran into them as search and rescue was arriving. That's right. And they had actually gone the wrong way. Um, And they were basically interviewed and asked, you know, were you going to make the call for help for this person? And they said no, which again was just a huge shock to us. I just, you know, it's kind of hard to understand how they could leave someone behind and not be concerned about their safety, especially when you're talking about Lynn Headwaters Park. That's a very large area. We've had numerous people um, that have not survived back there. And we've also had people that we still have not located to this day. Uh, were they very inexperienced hikers, Mike? Like, was that the problem? Well, I think very inexperienced. They didn't know each other very well. Um, our understanding is they met through some online kind of hiking group and basically went out for the day. And, you know, I think that's, you know, part of the problem is we have a bunch of people that are getting together. They're not familiar with each other's skill sets, their experience, and then they're going out and they're doing you know, larger hikes like Coliseum, um, which can really, you could get into trouble very quickly on. Right. So then what, did Search and Rescue have a few words with these people about that? Yeah, but to be completely honest, again, there's a bit of a language barrier there. So um, how much of that information was actually absorbed is we're not really sure. And our main focus was obviously to get this woman um, back to safety and to medical attention. But you know, I can tell you, I just, for myself personally, I just, I, I cannot understand how this would happen. How someone, yeah. you know, I get that they split up their group into a faster and a slower group. But if you're going to have two people that are coming up, you know, they're the slow group, you can't split up. Like, you just cannot do that, especially with people that are very inexperienced. Right. So, have you ever seen a case like this before? Uh, not, not where they've you know, the other person has made it out and is absolutely not concerned about the other person's safety and about letting someone know that, you know, they're going to be back there. They have no light source. It's after dark. Um, and that they're probably going to need help. Yeah. Okay. And is the lady okay? She's okay. Yeah. She's obviously gone to, to get medical attention for her ankle. Um, we don't believe it's a fracture, but um, certainly she needed assistance to get out. That's for sure. And I think that kind of silver lining to this story is that informant that came across this young lady um, took the time out of his day. You know, he made himself much later than than he anticipated getting home. He didn't make the sea bus um, to save someone and make the right decisions. So, Right. Okay. So advice then, Mike, for people who, I mean, you're right. Those online hiking groups are pretty popular, right? They go, hey, I'm going to go do this this weekend. Who wants to come join me? What is your advice to those groups who maybe haven't done a lot of hiking? Yeah, I mean, start small. Coliseum is a, that's a a long trip. And I think you need to get to know the people that you're going to be hiking with before you attempt larger scale hikes. I get doing something in the front country that's a bit smaller, so you can get to know the people, get to know their experience, what kind of equipment they carry. 
Um, and, you know, always leaving a trip plan as well, which is, is super key as well. And, you know, was that in place? I don't think so. All right, Mike, listen, thanks so much for telling us about it. You bet. Have a nice day. You too. That's Mike Tanks from North Shore Rescue. We just had to talk about that story today because that's crazy, right? All right. Eat Vancouver is coming back for its 18th year and they're doing something a little bit different this year. They're actually going to have a day of only pastries. Well, if you're going to do that, then you can only talk to our next guest who's here with us on the show today. Because if you want a pastry, then you must go to Thomas Haas, of course, from Thomas Haas Chocolates. And he's going to be sharing some recipes at Eat Vancouver that he might just talk to us about as well. Hello, Thomas. Hello, hello, Sammy. How are you? I am more than excellent. Thank you. More than excellent. Not many guests say that when they come on the show. (laughs) What are you up to at the store these days? Oh, I am uh, running around with the Christmas anxiety in my neck and uh, trying to not fall behind. Um, yeah, it's October. I'm, it's October 1st and you're talking about Christmas anxiety already? Oh, well, there's, yeah, that's back in my head and there's Thanksgiving coming up next week and, um, and then we go knee deep into Christmas thinking. You, you do something different for every season, right? Like you have themes that you do. How do you come up with those different ideas for every season? Um... I mean, it's actually not that complicated. We learned over the years that we do this kind of 80-20 thing. So 80% is, you know, we know our customers expect from us um, because we are consistent. We are um, kind of reliable on that and we know it's a success. And then 20% of our um, uh, variety, we go creative and and try to reinvent ourselves sometimes and um, uh, just come up with new inspirations. Now, my favorite thing that you do, which you know this already, because I literally asked you about it as soon as you sat down. November 15. That's, that's when is the Christmas stolen going to be for sale? If you've never, if you think you've had it good stolen before, you have not had Thomas Hodge. How much of that do you sell every year? So we make 228 every day from November 15, from November, November 13th on um, until Christmas Eve. That's a lot. Yeah, and we sell out every day. I know you do, because it's like hard. Yeah. I, I feel like I always have to show like up we there early. Like we're always one day ahead, so we don't actually sell out on the shelves. But every single day, we do 228. You got it. If you've never had it before, you do have to and check heavy. it out. I know they're heavy, but they're filled with marzipan. That's why they're so heavy. Some some of them cheap out on the marzipan, but not yours. That's what's really good about yeah, them. Yeah, we put a lot of effort in there. A really lot do. of attention to detail in in a what people call it a bread. We don't call it a bread. No. It's more like a delicate kind of cake. It's a cake slash bread yeah, slice slash of that. Delight slash God. breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, It's dinner, everything. You, have, you can tell how much I love it. If you haven't tried it, you're going to have to this year. So you still, you've got the two stores, one in North Vancouver, one and here one on West on Broadway. Kitsilano. Yeah, in Kitsilano. Yeah. And you're going to be participating in Eat Vancouver this year. That's correct. What are you going to be doing? Well, I just figured out I'm actually an all day, <laughs> an all day event there. So there's yeah. three, three <laughs> events. Um, there is an exclusive uh, demo, which I'm going to hold for only, I think there was 18 tickets available and they were sold out within no time, apparently. So in that first uh, demo, I'm I going to show 18 dessert lovers how they can make um, three desserts sophisticated enough to serve in a restaurant, but easy enough to make at home. Uh, Are you sure about that, though? Which, <laughs> that sounds very challenging. 
Pretty sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a little bit in denial at times, but um, I think um, I, I thought it through a lot of times. And it's actually not an easy one because when I go into a restaurant and I'm like, well, anything I have here should be better than I can prepare it at home. Uh, at least it should be kind of like, okay, that's a lot of work. And, uh, and sometimes that's not always the case. So in this case, it is a little bit of work, but it's actually not that complicated. Now, Thomas, I, you know, we, we did many episodes of City Cooks together. You were on the show with me. I've So I've worked with and hosted a lot of perfectionists over the years. Robert, yeah, I'm not one of them. Nope. Robert Clark is definitely one. Pino Pastorero. Oh, is, yes. Yeah. Pino oh, definitely yeah, is from Chiapinos. Yeah. But yeah. I put you in that category too. Nope. You Really? <laughs> no, I'm in the search of excellence, but I do not want to be a perfectionist because... Okay, now this is off the record because it will it's be... It's not re- off the record because you're on the radio oh, right now. Am I on? Yeah. Okay, so it will be really hard to work with a perfectionist. Plus, I'm a happy person. So being a perfectionist, you are never happy. While I'm never content of whatever we do and I'm like, ah, oh, we can do this a little better. Um, I think I That's do... That's not a perfectionist. You literally just define what a perfectionist is. Somebody yeah. who's always striving to be perfect or that we can do but it better. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with excellence because I don't think perfectionism or something perfect actually exists. So you think there's a difference between excellence and perfection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, per- I'll buy yeah that. perfection. I'll buy that. Perfection is like you can put a heavy weight on it of like, oh my God, is it really perfect? Is it perfect in your eyes? Is it perfect in my eyes? It's probably not perfect. You will never be perfect and you'll never be happy. <laughs> that's so, literally Thomas's voice in his head all the time. Yeah. So like I'm that. like, mm, that's pretty close. Yeah. And we can do that 10 times, 100 times, and we can do it tomorrow again. And actually you can do it too. So let's try for that. Okay. Can you tell me about one of the, one of the recipes that you're going to be making with people? So um, I can tell you all three quickly. Okay, but sure. um, So the first one is actually a classic I've, I've always had great success with. And so I would love to share things which are... Um, uh, crowd pleases and it's also the season a little bit so we have pineapples which we uh, shave like a carpaccio we make a little bit of a syrup of ginger vanilla beans and lime juice and then lay the carpaccio out just like you would lay out a carpaccio of this finely shaved pineapple uh, season it with a little bit of that syrup and then we have coriander leaves uh, which we grind with sugar and uh, limes which we juice and make a little bit of a sorbet you can make that at home by just making a granite so you can just freeze it and then shave it and um and then we have our pomegranate seeds um this is all the same dessert yep that's one dessert so it's a pineapple carpaccio with lime sorbet that sounds amazing Number two is one of our new, um, uh, it's called the Black Line, B-L-A-K, um, which was kind of inspired, uh, I'm, that's probably I'm getting old and I'm like, the overuse of artificial food color in our industry has gone so crazy. You mean in the, in the candy industry, like the in, chocolate industry? In the chocolate industry, oh. even in the cake industry now. And I'm like, you don't need that. It's all mother nature gives you all. And so I'm getting a kind of frustrated where the new generation goes. I'm like, okay, we do the opposite. We make exactly something super simple, focused on the beauty of cocoa and dark chocolate and so we came up with this black line each recipe has only five ingredients okay and um uh, but it's i think um really dialed in of creating something beautiful with very few ingredients and keep it as pure and as natural and you gotta love dark chocolate so that's our second uh, dessert and our th- uh, third dessert is something which is easy again you can take a verine like a little shot glass or any kind of um, glass you feel is appropriate and we use three chocolates and only cream and milk 
milk chocolate, dark chocolate, white chocolate, and create an emulsion and pour them layer by layer in the glass. Let it set in the fridge for a few hours, and it's a delicious, simple, creamy chocolate dessert. That is so yummy. How do you get inspired? Um, through work. I have to say, like, I have to be in it. I have to be working in the kitchen and then having my hands in all the things. And then I feel like, oh my, oh, I just got an idea. And then I write it down because I forget things. So I write it down again. And, um, and then the next day I practice it and I take somebody with me like, I just got this idea. Let's try this out. And we have a couple of runs and we have now a pretty good success rate that like the vision we have uh, matures pretty quickly into something uh, we can keep for a long time. Because one thing I found that is so distinctive about like Thomas House chocolates in particular are the flavor combinations that you come up with. They are, um, again, not out of the super ordinary. Like there's no wasabi and mustard seeds or garlic gloves infused in milk chocolate. So they're pretty based on on things which we know they will go well together you know milk chocolate and green cardamom for example and yeah. almonds that's something which really goes Classic. well together or um, certain herbs go well together or certain fruits go well together with certain types of of chocolate so and again we, we like to please and we don't like to shock so we want to make sure that the combinations we do they're interesting enough for somebody to like mm, i want to try this and then they're like mm, and that actually works yeah so um yeah, and that's a never-ending story. Sometimes it comes in circles, and I'm like, oh, I just got this idea. And then I feel, no, we did it five years ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now <laughs> I'm starting to happens. date myself. He said. But it's funny that you say you keep a, do you keep like a notebook handy where you write it down right away in case you forget it? Yeah, it's actually loose papers, and they're all over the place <laughs> in an organized manner. Oh, if such a thing were possible, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're going to be doing this Eat Vancouver. Is this, this the first time that you've done Eat Vancouver? No, I've done it two years ago. Okay. So the, only the second time, though, at 18 years of doing it. Yeah, I think um, it has changed over the years. Um, uh, the format has changed. And so this is now this third year. It has changed a little bit again where there's this demo I'm doing. And then we have an expert tasting panel following right after, which... I think a like hundred people can come and ask questions so and good. get an inside view into the industry. And there's four of us on that panel. And then we move uh, right into the grand tasting, which uh, 15 pastry chefs and chocolatiers from the city, which is great that we can get them all together. So you at home can say like, hey, I want to see what's actually out there without driving throughout the whole city and, um, and, and come to the um, Vancouver Club and... And try all that. So you love dark chocolate. I mean, who doesn't love dark chocolate? But nowadays, it seems like you can get this huge variety of dark chocolate. What's the perfect kind? Well, that would be the one you like the most. But, <laughs> but um, I like uh, the 72% myself, I, I think, right? Here we go. Yeah. So that's exactly where like in the 70% range I think it's not too My bitter My husband likes 84% and that it's, just I you just... know you you develop a palate for just like people develop a palate for bitter awful coffee sometimes I'm like yeah. oh my god it takes a while to get you off that um, you can have dark chocolate and really dark 95% and which becomes very chalky at the beginning yeah. but eventually your palate starts adapting to that and, and then it's anything below that use for example yogurt like 
how many people have yogurt which is sweetened, which shouldn't be sweetened. And then it's a shock for them when they go to natural yogurt. So it's the same if you go to really bitter chocolate for a long time and then you want something more balanced and you're like, mm, there's too much sugar in it. Right. And vice versa. So you go something to What's answer. What's the ideal for you to work I with? Think, I think it's uh, between 69 and 75%. That's perfect. Yeah, I think so. I think it gives you enough punch of the bitterness of the cocoa bean, but it rounds up the flavor and it's not uh, putting you on one of the edges of like, mm, that's not what I'm looking for. Have you ever put out a book? No. Have you ever thought about it? Um, I was approached so many times. And in the early years, I'm like, you know, if I want to write a book, I don't want to write it in a haste of like, okay, I write a book because it's I've in said right I'm now. Write a book, yeah, yeah uh, it should last for a long time and it should be dirty within three years because people use it that often. Yeah. And thinking of nowadays, I think um, there hasn't been a book uh, not written. So I, I think all the books have been written. Not true. That's there not true. Your so book much. has not been written. Then it should be different than just, you know, there's a lot. I realize sometimes when we do um, events and um, it should be all about cooking and then actually we talk about life and we talk about <laughs> life and chocolate. I, and I would we talk about Thomas Haas philosophies book, and yeah. all of a sudden people are like, oh, forget about the cooking. Let's just talk about them. <laughs> about what else happened so it might be one day it comes out and if i become a wise man um there, yeah there will be a lot of uh, interesting stories in I there than just I'm, sure, recipes. I would buy th I'm just saying i would buy that book in the meantime we're going to have to make do with the fact that thomas haas from thomas haas chocolates will be at eat vancouver this year it's eat vancouver.com they have a whole list of great people including we said the perfectionist, the man himself, Pino Pastorero, who will also be a part of that and many others. You can check out more information online. Thomas, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me.